Thank you, Rick and Nancy, and I appreciate that last song. I'm convinced somebody here needed that song this morning. Somebody somewhere listening on live stream needed that song this morning. God sends what we need just in time. Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1. While you're turning, let me give you another progress report. Of course, we're thrilled uh, that the long and tedious process of the uh, playground is, is near completion. Just a little bit of light dirt work, some grass growing, that sort of thing to be done. But the playground itself is ready for action. So we're thankful for that. I want to say I do appreciate uh, Brother Joe for all of his countless hours of hard work uh, to design the playground, to put all those holes in the right place. He was here with every work crew and then here without work crews a lot of times, put in a lot of hours in the hottest time of the year to try to get this done, and it is done. But let me give you another piece of information. Wednesday morning, 5 o'clock, the crew to finish up the concrete for the bus garage will arrive. And so that pour will happen uh, Wednesday and Thursday. They complete their dirt work. Uh, they will take care of all the things to prepare. And it is a great big pour of concrete. We have the building, 60 by 70 feet. We also have a ramp, an approach ramp, going to the bus bays that will be poured. I believe that's 60 by 40 feet. And a sidewalk going all the way around uh, the north side and this side of the building. They'll do all of that. A lot of concrete will be showing up, and it will look fine when it's all over with, and we can start using the bus garage, park the bus in there. That gives us two more very much needed parking places in the parking lot. Uh, then we will start construction on uh, the youth room and shepherd bag assembly room. And both, of course, are very much needed because of what we do with our mission work here and our mission work over there. So we're looking forward to all that being done. This is a classic example of what can be done through patient persistence. You see, this project didn't start just a couple of months ago and a few weeks ago when that building came up. This project began years ago when we stepped out on faith and pursued the acquisition of this property and spent money without any guarantees that it would come through and then acquired the property, and then began the tedious process of developing the property. You remember all the, uh, the stumps and those kind of things where the Jimmy Wynn spent the hottest part of the year on a bulldozer out there. And then, of course, the patience in getting the dirt work done. That took about a year or so. But all of this is paying off. And this is not the last thing that will be done to this property. Uh, this is just the beginning. So we realize that make things happen, we have to work now, and we have to work consistently and persistently. So thank you for being the kind of church that's not, uh, that does not back away from a big challenge like this. We'll be looking at Gideon. You read through children's Bible story books, and Gideon is mentioned. Now, not only is he mentioned in that, but he's mentioned in another Bible story, chapter of the Bible. We call it the Heroes of Faith, found in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews was talking about the Heroes of Faith, and when he came to Gideon, he said, And what more could I say? Time would fail me 
to tell you about Gideon. And then he lists several other names. But Gideon is on the top of the list in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Gideon. Now, we might think, man, what a hero of faith. We don't have anything in common with this guy. Oh, but we have more in common with him than we think. Uh, and I would see that we can identify with Gideon before this morning is over. In Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them in the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, and also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in the land in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for the history that you put before us. We thank you for the people that you introduce us to. Now we ask that the lessons you have for us would be taken to heart. Speak to us very clearly today. Father, we need to hear from you, and we ask that would be done. We ask your presence in this building, in this service, would be unmistakable. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
we are introduced to a very difficult circumstance in the land of Israel. Before we look at the man Gideon, we want to look at the background of a national crisis. We want to look at the circumstances he finds himself in. First of all, the crisis is mentioned in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 2. The hand of Midian, the Midianites, prevailed against Israel. And then details are provided. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up. The Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the crops, the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock, their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels. They were without number. They would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished. The crisis was this. A group called the Midianites, the Amalekites, would come in just as crops were coming off. And they would come in with their tents, which meant their families. They would come in with their livestock. They would come in with their camels, which was a war animal. They would come in, and just about time the produce would come off, they would come in and raid the fields and get it. Now, that's pretty frustrating. Now, if any of you have ever tried to raise a garden and put in a lot of sweat to raise the garden, you know there comes a time where you're not sure if you have the garden or if the garden has you. And you put in all that time and effort, and then right as the time comes to pick those peas or whatever you're growing, they just come in and take it and run off. And it got so bad that the children of Israel were living in caves. They were living in the mountainous rocks. Now, Alfred Edersheim mentions, he was a Bible scholar in the 1800s, that even back then, some of the critics of the Bible were saying, well, there's, there's no archaeological evidence of any of these people, any of these things happening, the judges that we have here. And then, wouldn't you know, later on, there was archaeological evidence showing the fact that the Hebrew people did live in caves. They did live in the mountains and the strongholds. There was, there was not a lot of buildings that they built about the time of the judges, but they were living in caves. So archaeology verified the truth of the Bible one more time. Well, that's the crisis. It was horrible. The people of Israel were hiding in caves because of the Midianites. Now, the reason is clearly stated. In verse 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them in the hand of Midian for seven years. And then in verse 8, he mentions it again. They cried out to God for the, for the, because of the Midianites. God didn't send them a general. God sent them a preacher. Boy, weren't they disappointed. They wanted a general. And they said, we need some help here. So God said, well, the help you're going to get is a dose from my word. And therefore, they sent a prophet. And the prophet said to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you from Egypt, brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all who oppressed you. 
and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord you God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You have not obeyed my voice. So what he said is this. You're in the shape you're in as a country because as a country you have ignored the voice of God, the word of God, the instructions he clearly gave them over and over again. You see, disregard for God's word always leads to the acceptance of ungodly attitudes and practices. You say it began with a seemingly small act of disobedience out of convenience. It was just easier to do things their way and ignore God's way. Look back in chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. Starts with however. That is in contrast to something. The something it's in contrast to is God had told them as early as back in the travels through the wilderness in Exodus. It is mentioned again in Leviticus. It's mentioned again in Numbers. It's mentioned again in Deuteronomy numerous times. God said, you go in and you drive out these ungodly people and their influences from their land. Drive out the ungodly influences from their land. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shehan and its villages, nor Teanach and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Abiam and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land, and it came to pass when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute and did not completely drive them out. In the next several verses, names tribe after tribe of Israel that did not drive the inhabitants out like God told them. Over and over and over, if you read there, they say, and neither did they drive them out, and they drive them out. Now, why didn't they do that? First of all, it was convenient. But now we see the hook. When they were strong and they could have driven them out, they put the Canaanites under tribute. Now, what does all that mean? If we drive them out, they're gone. But hey, we're going to leave them here and we're strong and we're going to give them a high tax to stay in this land. So it's going to be better for us financially if we ignore God's word. It's going to be better for me financially for me to tell God he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is going to cost me too much. You can't be telling me to do this, God. It costs a lot more to live for you. And so for financial gain, they abandon the ways of God. Did you catch that? For financial gain, they readily turn their back on God's word. Seemed to be a small compromise. But disregard for God's word in little things always leads to the acceptance and it leads to big disaster. Look in chapter 2, verse 11. Again, this is several years later. 
And they've gone through compromise after compromise after compromise of seemingly little things. After all, it's just a little thing. It's going to be a lot better for us financially if we just leave them here and tax them. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Then if you go down to chapter 3, verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Then you go down to chapter 3, verse 12. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Elgon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you have chapter 4, verse 1. When Ahud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, introducing our text, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over again. This spans a couple of hundred years. This spans several generations. One generation learned it for the previous generation of how to disregard God's word. So one generation would disregard God's word and be punished. The other generation learned how to do that, and so they would disregard God's word. And over and over and over, they did evil. But that's not the key word. The key phrase here, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, what they were doing was not that evil to the Midianites and the Amorites and the people from Moab and the Canaanites. Oh, it didn't seem evil to them. They were just fitting in with the people around them. So it wasn't evil in the sight of the people around them, and nor did it become evil in their sight. But you see, that perspective does not matter. It was evil in God's sight. It was evil in the Lord's sight. And over and over, it specifically said they did evil in the Lord's sight. And when all comes down to it, that is the opinion that will really matter. Nobody else is in our life. Who are we going to please? The people around us? Or are we going to please God? When the people around us or our own desires desire something other than God's, whose opinion will we listen to? They listen to the wrong opinion. It all looked okay to them. But in God's sight, it wasn't. That's the key phrase in the cause of the backdrop. But God remains true. In chapter 6, verse 16, nevertheless, I mean chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Did you catch that? Plural, different times. They would get in a bad way, and God would raise up a judge, a leader, to finally give them firm leadership, turn them back to the Lord, and he, many times, or she, in some cases, would be a good, strong leader that could rally the troops and deliver them from the hands of their enemies. Oh, look in verse 17, though. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but played the harlot with other gods, bowed down to them, they turned quickly from the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. Hmm. <clears throat> God would deliver them, they would slip back. But you know what God would do when they slipped back? He'd deliver them again, over and over 
and over again. It talks about the patience of God with the frailty of man. I believe it's in the 103rd Psalm. It says he knows our frame, and he remembers we're dust. We're dust. We're weak. We're frail. God knows that. And over and over, God came through and delivered them. And here we go one more time. God chooses a leader. Now here's the lesson for us. Number one, as we look at Gideon. In every generation, God sends people to do his work. Chapter 2, verse 16, spans several generations. Several generations. And it says he raised up judges. That did not mean a group of judges at one time and at one place. He's talking about judges over a period of generations and generations. Now, Gideon knew this. How did he know this? In chapter 6, verse 13, where we read, as he begins to talk to God, and he says, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up out of the land of Egypt? So he had heard about the history of Israel. He had heard about the history of God choosing people, starting with Moses and then with Joshua, and then with the judges, these generations, every generation had people that God would raise up to do something. He knew this. In every generation, God sends people to do his work, and that has not changed. In every generation since, God has raised up people to do his work. And you know what the best evidence of that is? This church right here. Because if there was just one generation that dropped the ball, the next generation would be doomed. Every generation, God has had faithful people. And God has sent faithful people to do his work. They carry on his work. And our church is here today because of God's faithfulness in others. So, the first thing, in every generation, God sends people to do his work. Then secondly, watch this, there comes a time... When God lays his hand on you. Gideon had heard how God had used other people. And now God is hearing, Gideon's hearing from God, you are the one for this generation. There should come a time for all of us, every single one of us, when we cease to simply watch Others do God's work and recognize we have our own work to do. You see, and Gideon found that day when it was not all about what everybody else had done for the Lord and what everybody else was doing for God and everybody else's work. There came a time where Gideon knew that God was saying, I have something for you to do. Now, we need to realize, we need to all realize God has decided to use us for something. When I say us, me individually, not us co collectively. It's always, if we're looking at the us thing, somebody else may get it. God wants to use me. God wants to use you to do something, to do something. 
Now let's look at Gideon's response. Now we look at Gideon's response, we realize what kind of man was Gideon? Well, the book of Hebrews says, man, he was a mighty man of faith. That puts him out of my league. Oh, no, no, no. Look at the text. What kind of man was Gideon? First of all, Gideon was frustrated with the difficulties of his life. He was a frustrated man. This is pretty obvious. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and said unto the terebinth tree, or an oak tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joaz the Abizarite, which his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now we may read over that, and may, that may not just give us any kind of insight, but let, let's put the insight into it. Do your homework. The wine press was always because of the effects of gravity on the lowest piece of the property. You always wanted the wine press in a hole, in a valley, because the grapes, you would bring them down to the wine press. And when you pressed out the grapes, it would flow downward into a collection vat. And so it was the lowest piece of property that you had. Well, what was he doing there? He was threshing wheat. Here is the, the practice of threshing wheat. You'd get your wheat, and you'd get it all together. You had to separate the husk from the kernels. So they would get a stick of some sort, some sort of thing, and they would beat the grain on the ground to knock the husk off of it. Then they would throw it up in the air and let the wind take the husk away. You know where you did that? On the highest piece of property. Because you wanted the wind to work for you. You wanted the wind to take it away. Where was Gideon? Because of the Midianites, he was trying to, th trying to thresh wheat in the lowest part of the property. Not any wind there. It was hot. It was sweaty. And you know what would happen when you would throw all that in the air? It all just come right back down on top of you. No wind would blow it away. No doubt he was hot. He was sweaty. He had husk all over him. He was a man who was frustrated with the difficulties of his life. And why was he doing it there? He was a man who was worried. He was worried about something. You ever been worried about something? Anybody here have that in common with, with Gideon? You ever been afraid of something that you couldn't manage? You couldn't control. You didn't know how to all turn out. So you're worried about it. You're afraid of it. There's a man who was frustrated. He was worried. He was afraid. He was a man with some uncomfortable questions. Now God comes to him and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Well, in verse 13, Gideon not having any of that kind of talk. He done had it up to here. The effects of life had just been so hard on him. First thing he says, with if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? You ever thought that? You ever said that? Why is this happening to me? If God is with us. So here's a man with some uncomfortable questions. He continues. And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Where is this mighty hand of God? 
Where is God right now? Those are difficult questions. Sometimes we have them, and then we'll quickly say, oh, oh, I, I don't want you to think that way, but we already have, hadn't we? You see, here's a man with some uncomfortable questions about why God was doing what he did, why God was, was, had left them. And God's nowhere to be seen. He's not anywhere around here. He's not working here. He had some uncomfortable questions. And thirdly, he was a man with a handy collection of excuses. Oh, now we're beginning to find we have a lot more common in Gideon than we think. He was a man who was frustrated. He was a man who was afraid. He was a man who was worried. He was a man who was asking some uncomfortable questions about God. And now here's a man with handy excuses. He says, you're going to be the one to deliver Israel. Verse 15, he said to him, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's clan. He said, I am not your man. Here are the excuses. I'm the runt in my father's house, and my father's house is the runt in Manasseh, and I'm not your man. So he had a handy list of excuses of why he could not, why he would not do what God was asking him to do. I mean, it's just there's no discussion, God. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one, and here are my excuses. But, oh, God didn't see what he was. God saw what he could be. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now here's the runt in his daddy's house, who is the, whose clan is the runt of Manasseh, and he's threshing grain like a doofus, in the wine vat because he can't get on the hill because he's afraid of the Midianites. I mean, you're saying, what are you talking about, God? There's no mighty man of valor around here. There's somebody else I'm not looking at. No, God didn't see what he was. God didn't see what he was capable of that day. God saw what he could be. God saw it in him. And God sees what you can do. And God sees what you can be. You may not see it, all you may see is the weaknesses and your handy list of excuses. God saw what he could be. And God sees what's in you. And God knows you have something he can use for your, for his glory. And God overcame all of Gideon's fears, all of his questions, all of his faults, all of his excuses with one statement. Don't forget that statement because we're going to need it when we falter and make excuses. What is that statement? Verse 16. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. Canceled out everything. Canceled out all the excuses. Zip. No excuses are valid anymore. Cancel out all of his worries. Canceled out all of his weaknesses because God said, I will be with you. And you see, it was the same with Moses. Exodus chapter 1 verse 12. I will be with you, he said. It's the same when God was talking to Joshua. 
in Joshua chapter 1. Two times he says, Joshua, you be strong. You will be, be of good courage. I will be with you. And did you know that same statement is for us? Jesus said, recording the book of Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you even to the end of the world. So the same promise Gideon had, the same promise Joshua had, the same promise Moses had, Jesus left for us. I will be with you. So what does that do for our excuses? Cancels them. Cancels our excuses. What does that do about our weaknesses? Cancels them. He's with us to the end of the world and he gave us a job to do and that is to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ starting right here and making sure the church does his job. So we close with this. This is where we sum it all up. I always have to give credit where credit is due. I have a, a brother of another color that many of you know. His name is uh, Evangelist Leroy Martin. And Leroy and I, we, we a lot of times cross paths. We always like to, to talk about the Lord and talk about the Lord's work. Well, I was with Leroy one day, and actually he was doing a graveside service. So I got to lay this credit on him because of how he put it that I think nails it on the head. At the graveside service, like in no other place, he said this, look, time is short. Time is short. For all of us, our days are limited. And the work is always great. There are souls to save. There's a kingdom to build. There's a church that needs workers. All of this is important. And the work never ceases. And time is short. And watch this. There's nobody but us. This is it. There's no they. There's nobody but us. So in Leroy Martin's good way of putting it, so you better get in where you fit in and find your place of service and get there now and get the work going. Stop watching other people do the work and get in there and do our part. Now what that part is for you, I don't know, but God will let you know. You see, we need to find our work, not just look at their work because too much is at stake. Souls are dying without Christ. Are our excuses valid enough to watch other people reach souls? None of them are valid enough. Get in where you fit in. Find your place. Step up. Let's do the work as we stand and sing. Number 153.